Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in this Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, we have amazing guests join us to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. Yes, you are going to hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more importantly, you're going to take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, my goal here is to have guests on this show that will inspire you, yes, you, to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can live inspired. On today's episode, I have the honor, and I'm standing up while I say that, the absolute honor of introducing an international best-selling author of several books, one of which is called The Shack. And as of today, yes, actually today, it's going to be in movie theaters all around the country. My friends, let's welcome William Paul Young to the Live Inspired with John O'Leary podcast. Paul, welcome to our episode. And I am standing up. Literally. <laughs> and I am so honored to be with John O'Leary. Well, right Paul, now, it, it's, right a, it's a, a mutual love dance that we're having. And we're thrilled, Paul, that you're with us. And uh, to, to be with us on the day that the shack comes out into theaters, man, it means even more. So thanks for making time. You bet. Let me let me give you a little funny story. And it's one of those God sense of humor stories. So uh, the shack was supposed to come out on um, November 18th. And uh, we were gearing up for it and stuff like that, or Lionsgate was. And then um, uh, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Mm. So uh, Mel Gibson, which is a Lionsgate movie, and it also has uh, Sam Worthington, who plays McKenzie, as a main character in Hacksaw Ridge. And uh, he wanted it to come out in this year's cycle for a possible Academy Award for Best Director. Mm. Well, Mel, you know, Mel doesn't have any weight in Hollywood. so No, I never even heard of him, but go on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we deferred, and um, and you know at the time it's like, oh really? Uh, we've lost this slot going into Thanksgiving, Christmas, yes. and all that. And um, uh, but it was like, all right, you know, we'll see, we'll see how this works out. It's actually worked out fantastically well. It gave the post production editors a lot more time to mm-hmm. get the movie where they wanted it. Uh, we didn't get kind of in the backwash of the election mm-hmm. um, stuff. And uh, and so Lionsgate looks around for a date uh, for the movie. And they need they want to come out before Easter and they want a Friday uh, for the for the national launch. And so they pick March the third, not realizing it's three three for a movie about the Trinity. Mm. Ah, you know, and so. The March the 2nd is a sneak, you know, in selected theaters nationwide. March 3rd is the actual domestic national Canadian U.S. release. Well, for those who don't know the name William Paul Young or they have never heard of The Shack, they've been buried under a rock for a little while. Paul, tell the folks listening today a little bit more about you and then a little bit more about the work that you do today. 
so um great question so i'm i'm a missionary kid preacher's kid i'm a white canadian i was born in the northern part of alberta but when i was a year old my parents and i i was the firstborn we moved across the other side of the world so that my parents could be pioneer missionaries in the highlands of New Guinea. Mm. Um, our, our tradition was modern evangelical holiness, fundamentalist. And, uh, and so I grew up in a very multicultural world. I grew up uh, uh, where English was not my first language. And uh, that, I think that had a huge impact. Well, it did have a huge impact. Uh, uh, amidst all the wonder of it, I had some really significant great sadnesses. Uh, that took me a lot of years to work out. And I think for some of us who grew up in a religious environment, it just takes us a lot of time to deconstruct some of the things that we have appropriated or been been um, uh, taught to believe along the way in order for something that's actually a living faith to emerge. Mm. And that was sort of my story. So we came back to Canada when I was around 10 years old. Um, my parents, my dad became an itinerant pastor I went to 13 schools before I graduated um, from uh, Terrace, B.C., up in northern British Columbia. And then um, went to uh, Bible school in Saskatchewan, ended up uh, finishing a religion degree in Oregon on my way to L.A., which I never really made it to L.A. But, mm-hmm. Well, you made it now. But, ah, funny. That's funny. <laughs> Didn't even think of that. And, um, and you know, over the course of the years, uh, all, all the shame and the baggage uh, that I drug along uh, into my marriage and everything else just exploded at one point. And uh, that started an 11-year deconstruction, reconstruction process um, that is represented by Mackenzie's Weekend in the Shack in mm-hmm. the book. Um, so in uh, 2005, as a Christmas present for our kids, uh, we have six children, and the youngest was 13 at the time, um, on the train to one of my three jobs. Uh, at 40 minutes each way, and Kim had been saying, you know, someday you got to, Kim's my wife, and yes. someday as a gift for our kids, you need to put, you know, in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. And uh, and so I, I wrote the novel um, on the train, made 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I ever wanted that book to do, and gave six to the kids. Kim got a copy, the extras I gave to my friends, and I went back to work. Not once had it crossed my mind to publish. So m- this was not like a bucket list thing yes, or, yes. you know, and uh, uh, of course we're going to take some deep dives into parts of that story, but uh, yes. that's sort of the bird's eye view. The, and the book. Well, let's the book, talk about the, yeah, the, the journey of the book <clears throat> as far as yeah. numbers go, as, as it goes viral, Paul. <laughs> and then as we come back, I, I, I do want you to unpack what the book is really about. But most most authors, um, they have a bucket list. They have a big goal. They seldom actually get there. You had no bucket list. You had no real goal other than writing down your heart, your faith, your journey in some regards, and providing it as Christmas present to six little ones around the tree. But then yeah. from there, this thing goes international. So t- take me from 15 copies at the depot uh, to 16 and 17 and beyond. How, d- how does it make this transition? Um, well, my friends start giving it to their friends because, I mean, you give a book to your kids for Christmas and it's like, oh, a book. Thanks, Dad. Right. And we'll get right on, we'll get right <laughs> right. on that. <laughs> you know. 
So it took them a while, but my, my friends were on it, and they started giving it to their friends. We actually had to put a little collection together to make 15 more copies at Office Depot. And, um, and then it, it ended up in the hands. I, I'd actually um, been a driver for a for real author one day, you know, because he, he was up in Oregon and he needed a driver, and I just happened to be available for six hours. I drove him around. His, his name is Wayne Jacobson. He was the only author I'd ever met. And when my friends started giving uh, the manuscript to their friends, I started getting emails from people that I didn't know, and I didn't know what to do with them. And so I figured I'd ask Wayne because he knows, you know, he's a for real author, and so he must get emails. And, yes. And uh, so I, I sent him a copy of the manuscript just electronically and said, all right, I wrote this thing, I hear it, but I said, here are the emails. Yes. What do you do with these things? You know, because they're so compelling and so amazing. And uh, um, so that was how that conversation really started. He, he said, well, you know, I'm really busy, and, and I understand that. People, people always want you to read their stuff, you know. And uh, <laughs> yes. he said, I said, you don't even have to read it. That's not even why I sent it. But um, he said, well, I, I, I like to try to read it, but it'll take about six months. And um, that was on a Friday. And Monday, he calls me. All of our communication had been, you know, just occasional emails. And he calls me and he says, what were you thinking sending me that manuscript? And I'm, I got such a shame-based history when somebody raises their voice like that. I'm, yes. I'm thinking like, uh, what did I do wrong? And so I'm, I'm telling them, just throw it out. I mean, I'm sorry, you know. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't print the pages fast enough. Mm. I'm like, what? What? He says, Paul, I haven't read anything like this. In years where my first thought is, I got friends I need to send this to mm-hmm. right now. I said, I said, well, send it to whoever you want. He said, well, I already did. And two of those friends who didn't know each other at the time were Brad Cummings and Bobby Downs. And, um, and I didn't even really know Wayne very well at this time at all. And that started a conversation because Bobby was involved in film with his brother Kevin. And uh, so that conversation elicited a conversation about putting it into print. And what I was told was that if you can sell 100,000 copies of a novel, Hollywood will come to your door about a, about a potential film. And uh, because 100,000 is rarefied air. Absolutely. Well, I didn't. Yeah, what I didn't know is that the average book only sells three to 5,000 copies its entire existence. And, um, and so, you know, but um, I didn't know that. So we got it ready uh, sent it to 26 publishers who all turned it down. I asked, how hard is it to publish a book? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it didn't bother me that they turned it down because I had no expectations going in. And, um, and so Brad and Wayne created Windblown Media, a publishing company, to publish the book and then to do other projects that they wanted to do. Um, and so we pooled our resources. I had a buddy in Oregon who loaned me some money. One of the guys had savings and the other one had a visa and a MasterCard. And Brad volunteered to ship the books out of his house at night because he was putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And we found a local printer and we ordered 10,000 copies, which landed in yes. Brad's garage in May of 07. And we had no marketing, no distribution. Um, in the first 13 months, we, we estimate that we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million oh copies of the shack. Gosh. I know. We're brilliant. 
you are the smartest man I've ever sat across from, or the luckiest. You know, oh no, it's a God thing. This is totally God's sense of humor. It's to use an Old Testament illusion, a Hebrew scriptures illusion. I think he wanted to let the world know that he can still speak through Balaam's ass. <laughs> We'll have to cut that later on, but just go on. We'll, we'll rip on it for a while. It, That's awesome. awesome. Right. So in so, 15 months or so, you sell what huge, huge titles and massively well-known authors are selling over the course of a lifetime of a huge book. You sell it out of the garage, essentially, Paul. What, yeah, was there two storage units and a printer. What, was there a like a single moment where it just blew up or was it no just gradually this thing just kept building momentum the snowball was going down the hill and it went from 15 copies to 100 to that 10,000 to 20,000 and then onward from there yeah and there were certain really significant pieces along that route um um there was a distribution company that found out about it and and uh started putting us at the front of Whenever an order came in, they would just put it at the front of their systems. And then uh, Barnes & Noble called up. Because at this point, you know, by the time we had hit, uh, let's see, it took three and a half months to go through the first 10,000 copies, really 11, because they always would send us 10% by accident. Yes. (laughs) It's called overage. So we went through 10,000 or 11,000 in three, three and a half months that we were hoping to get through in two years. Then we went through 22,000 in 60 days and then 33,000 in 30 days. And by that point, the publishers were coming back to talk to the guys and people like Barnes and Noble would call up and they actually did call up and said, Hey, we're really excited about your little book. Could you send us your marketing promotion plan so yes. we can get on board? And, and Brad tells them, would you send us one of yours that we can cut and paste? Yes. We don't even right. know what that is. We'll send you a cocktail napkin. And Exactly. So, so it was kind of nuts. And, and then Barnes and Noble came back and said, well, you know, normally we charge this really big fee for a publisher to put their books at the front of our stores nationwide. It's called placement. Would you consider allowing us to do that for you for three months for free? Well, let me pray and fast about that one. You know, it's like, sure. And uh, so by Christmas, we were climbing Amazon. We hit number one. Uh, in all books, and it stayed there. And then um, in in June, at the end of June of uh, 2008, um, that's when Brad and Wayne and Windblown entered a joint venture with Hachette Book Group, mm-hmm. uh, who who took the book internationally. And But before that happened, out of that garage, the storage unit and the local printer, we showed up on the New York Times at number one, just mm. showed up at number one, and stayed there for 49 weeks in a row. And uh, and it was just like, you and know? Just, and, Paul, I think some context is appropriate. Like, I I am now in this space of publishing and have friends who are in this space, and the, the goal of most authors is at some point with all their capital, all of their efforts, and New York, these huge, significant, successful publishing houses promoting it to maybe make a list, maybe. And that's if you're lucky for one week. For this little Oregon company to be shipping this out of, you know, units. California company. California company yeah. now. Uh, well, it is. They were in California. It yeah. is nothing short of miraculous. And, and I'm, I'm curious, overall, how many units have sold since the book originally came out? 
Over 22 million and 50 languages. Okay, so you've had some okay success, I guess. But the real question... Here's how nuts it is. It's in the top 100 fiction bestsellers of all history. Like, how nuts is that? I made 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I wanted it to do. So there's a riff there. And why don't we tell the folks listening right now, my friends... What this book is about, man. What what is what is the driver that is allowing a book to go from fifteen copies for family to ten thousand to twenty two thousand to twenty two million and fifty languages? T- tell us first, uh, again, why you wrote the book, and then give us a little bit of the background of what the story is about. The shack. Okay, so, and and here's some other little bits and pieces that kind of just blow your mind. Like it's the number two book in the history of Brazil. It's. Um, hmm. Croatia, Croatia dubbed it the book of their decade. And the Ministry of Culture last year contacted me and asked me to come speak to the country, which I did. And the spillover of this thing is just so incredible, and it just breaks down all these walls. Mm. So the book, the book is not that complicated. It's a parable. Uh, people ask me, is this, is this a true story? And I say, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a true story. It's just not real. Yes. Right? I do know what you that's mean. What par- yeah, that's what parables are. And this is a, and it's my history because I wrote it for my kids. I'm going like, all right. So Kim had been asking me, would you just write something that puts in one place how you think? And I didn't feel healthy enough to do it until the year I turned 50. So I tell people it took me 50 years to write The Shack. Mm. And um, and <clears throat> Mackenzie's weekend represents an 11-year deconstruction reconstruction process in my heart. So Mackenzie, the main character, <coughs> excuse me, is a father, and he takes his kids camping in eastern Oregon, and he has a massive loss. The youngest of his uh, children, um, a daughter, is abducted, and there's evidence found at a, at a shack up in the Oregon wilderness that she may have been murdered, but no body. And four years later, he gets this cryptic note in his mailbox in the middle of a snowstorm, and the way that it's written is mm. either potentially from the perpetrator or yes. from someone with an incredibly sick sense of humor, or maybe, you know, as crazy as it sounds, uh, from God, inviting him back to the place of his great loss where he got stuck. And, um, and so he goes back there not knowing what to expect, and that's when he encounters not who he thinks he was going yes. to meet there. And everything then explodes out of that. Now, the question about why this this book has done this is multiple has multiple layers to it. Um, one was timing. I think, you know, without the Internet, this would never have happened. It was word of mouth, but it was also timing in, in where we are in human history where there is a convergence of conversations about faith and loss and tragedy and the goodness of God as, as the walls of our institutional religious systems are crumbling, um, which they are, uh, what is emerging is a much more authentic conversation. And what the shack did in part is that it gave people a language to have a conversation about God that was relational, not religious. Yes. And, and that has been huge. And the second thing, major thing that it did is it validated our great sadnesses. It allowed us to begin to tell our stories. 
It gave people permission to lament, to grieve, to cry, because when you deal with the loss between a parent and a child, which I believe is the greatest loss a human being can experience, mm. it, it picks up every other loss along the way. And, uh, and, you know, here's the beauty of just an aside, is that this kind of loss is one that God knows personally, mm. and, if, and it's the deepest loss. Paul, I, I read the book, you know, 10 years ago, and in preparing for this conversation again, I've read it again. I remembered weeping a decade ago. I couldn't remember why, and I remember distinctly we, weeping again last week. And this time I knew exactly why. We, we had a massive loss in our community recently. Um, there was a tragedy where both the father and the mother uh, both lost their lives leaving behind four little little ones. And for me, I lost two friends, and we lost, um, we lost our innocence in some regards in our community. So we had this loss. But, but the real pain that I have today is seeing these little guys and watching them walk into school and knowing that they're being dropped off by people not named mom and dad and knowing that they're returning home to people not named mom and dad. It just crushes me. Uh, and I think what you mentioned earlier, this idea of giving people permission to share their story, and it's part of why I do this podcast, by the way, but, but also to validate the fact that there is sadness. It's not always Facebook happy. There aren't, aren't always feet on the beach with the sun shining. It's not always like this. And the shack has given me permission to let the tear ducts flow again and also to remind myself it's okay and I'm not alone. It's a, it's a beautifully, beautifully written book. And, and to be angry. Because there are things that we need to be angry about that are just wrong. You know, what we do to women, how we objectify women, what we do to children, what we do to one another, the betrayals that go on, the addictions that we're stuck inside, you know, and it's, and it's an anger that is for us. It's not an anger that is against us. And yet, and yet we've got so much shame that we plastered the face of God with all of our damage. And it's going to take us a while to get to the place where we can, begin to take the risk that God is good enough to trust. And that's the journey that most of us are on. Paul, when when your six kids finished reading that book, and then a few uncles and aunts, and maybe even your wife Kim picked it up, and then a few friends and strangers, when they drop it, okay, when they, when they finally set it back down and they wipe their tears, what what's the one takeaway, if there is one, that you hope they receive? Mm-hmm. I, I've never gone in looking for a a single takeaway like this. I think that good creative works uh, open up space for people to hear for themselves. So the one thing that I want a person to hear is what matters to them, some encounter that they have. You know, it's just like when you see the movie um, or read the book, it's going to hit you different every time you see it or mm-hmm. every time you read it because you moved. <laughs> and and this is the beauty of, of how incredibly we're crafted as human beings and the journeys that we're on, that different things will speak to us at different places. There are some over overarching things, but when a person may come into the theater and watch the movie and be absolutely confronted with their own judgmentalism or their inability to forgive and the arduous nature of that, or um, or the affirmation that, like as you said, that they're not alone that there is a God who is good. And, um, and, and the issue of trust is mm. a huge question that emerges inside the context of that story. But it's built inside story. 
And I think uh, every human being is a story, so we have affinity for it. And, and if it's not agenda and propaganda, which sadly a lot of our religious literature tends to be, uh, if it just trusts that the Holy Spirit can meet someone in that space, I've watched it happen over and over and over again. And it's different depending on what that person brings to the table. Paul, we, we have listeners tuning in from all over North America and now all over the world, which is extraordinarily humbling and exciting. And everyone comes from a different place in their faith background, uh, some very religious, some strong Christians and, and, and other faith backgrounds, others with no religion at all. They just have never believed or they have reasons now not to believe. What, what would you say to those who, who have no uh, have no faith. Is this the kind of book, the kind of movie that also they should consider checking out? Well, um, Sam Worthington, who plays Mackenzie, is an Aussie, and he is, uh, you know, he came on set uh, with a 10-week-old baby boy, his, his and his wife's first child. And when he's been doing interviews lately, um, in, the, in the recent days, and people have asked him about his spiritual journey. He says, Mackenzie, Mackenzie is my spiritual journey. He says, if you want to know the questions that I've had, and he says, I'm not coming from a faith background of any particular mm-hmm. nature or quality, but those are human questions. That's, those are my questions. That's the conversation that I want to be in. And he talks about, and on March 2nd, by the way, uh, when they do that special premiere night uh, across the country, um, there's going to be an interview with him where you hear him talk about this. Um, Delilah, the radio talk show host, mm-hmm. uh, uh, hosts this interview. And, and after the movie, after you watch the movie, there'll be about 20, 25 minutes of conversations with Delilah. I'm, I'm involved in that and, and Octavia and you'll, you'll just get to see a lot of the behind kind of scenes and interviews with the, the actors. But people without a faith background in some senses have an advantage over those of us who grew up in a religious background. Yes. Um, and, and that's been true since, since Jesus uh, was in Palestine. It was the religious people that created the greatest distance and sense of separation in terms of relationship with God. And, um, and so it, it compounds our baggage sometimes. It's not that there aren't some beautiful things that we inherit from that tradition, but let me tell you, you know, performance orientation and shame-based guilt, it's just, it, it doesn't produce uh, an authenticity of the inside and the outside life being cohesive. And um, um, so to the, to the non-religious, you're going to, this, this, this movie, this book, it'll sing to you, mm. and it has. I know so many of my Christian friends who were given the book by either an agnostic or an atheist saying, you need to read it, <laughs> right. you know, because it talks about a God that if there is a God, this is who I want it to be. This is who I, I want, the character and nature of God. If this is a God that is there, I might take the risk of beginning to have a conversation about it. But... Um, so, uh, yeah. You know, what's, um, and, what's, what's and interesting, Paul, one of the things I found interesting then, and I know it's going to pop as this movie uh, enjoys incredible success going forward and touching lives, is that mainstream theology and religion will push back and uh, 
I mean, I remember years ago of reading articles about you, Paul, where you were you were called out as a heretic and a whole lot of other <laughs> negative terms. My mom did it too. Your so your own loving mother has now referred to you as this. What well, is it? Yeah, she's passed it now, but she did. What What is it about the shack or um, the way you share your journey that has people pointing their finger at you with with fists clenched? Um, one thing I use imagery that is not inside the box of white Western culture, and. Um, so when you meet God the Father, God the Father isn't Gandalf with a bad <laughs> attitude, or, or Zeus, you know, or some omnibeam that's behind the back of Jesus. It's it is a large black African American woman, and <laughs> and and by doing that, I ended up tampering with people's idolatry, and uh, because we idolize the masculine in God in a way that that is, I think, pervasive and to such a degree that it's then spilled out on the way that we relate to women uh, globally, which is a disaster in so many respects. And um, But, you know, white men have had the positions of power, and they've had it uh, institutionally, ecclesiastically. And so a lot of times the people that are upset with what I've done, yes. it's not about the fact that they've actually read the book, because most of them haven't. Um, but what it is, is that it's tampering with their job security or it's tampering with their sense of identity or their sense of certainty. And we live in such a Western rationalism that we don't know how to deal with art. We don't know how to deal with metaphor. We don't know how to deal with imagery or parable. And, uh, and it's scary. So the people that get upset with the book and what I write, those are largely my own people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are modern evangelical fundamentalists. And, and I, they're my people, and I care about my people. And that's where I grew up. And, um, and so I know what they're afraid of, um, and, they're, and they bring their fear to the table. Everybody that's is right. dealing with being a control freak, and everybody has fear, right? And so when you deal with fear, you've got one of two choices. You either control or you trust. But a lot of us religiously don't have a God that's worthy of trust. This is a God that is unpredictable and ambivalent and distant and watching from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart and, um, and is not for me all the time. Well, how can you trust a God who is right. not good all the time? You know, and, and so a lot of our conceptions of God have got to be challenged. And this is what it ended up. You know, I wrote the book for six kids. <laughs> they loved it, you know, but I didn't know the world was going to read this. Not that I had changed any of the any of it. Well, and, that's uh, a good point. Would you have changed any of it, knowing that it would have s spread a little bit beyond your own backyard? There's one. There's one major mistake in it, and um, and I, and I love the idea and the reality that life is about participation. Mm -hmm. I don't think God has ever done anything alone. That's one of the reasons I love the Trinity, and. Uh, that means love and relationship have always existed. Um, and so I didn't write the book by myself. I think that's obvious when, when somebody reads it. But God didn't write it by himself either. And so it's a blending of, of even some of my misconceptions. There's a one, and I've left the mistake in there so that I can talk about it. Uh, one, that I can say it's in there. And, um, and, I, and there's lots of things that when you look back, mm -hmm. you craft a little bit different mm -hmm. or you change a few words here and there. But the one big mistake is that when Mackenzie goes back 
into the shack for the first time when it's been transformed in front of him. And, uh, and he is embraced inside the affection of three persons that he does not even begin to comprehend. When he goes back in, into that place, which is his own broken heart, it is the place he is stuck. He looks to where Missy's bloodstain should be, and it's gone. Yes, yes. It's a, that's a mistake. Just because you work through your stuff and you own it and you deal with it doesn't mean that the evidence of it disappears. That's awesome. In fact, uh, and this is why I love to talk about this, um, the cross, uh, it, which is front and center in Christianity, and it's a really difficult thing for a lot of people to understand because of the way that we presented it. We presented it as a God who needs sacrifice and is willing to beat the hell out of his son in order to be right with the universe. And, um, and that's not the message of it at all. The cross was not originated by God. First uh, John is very clear. God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. Any darkness that exists in the cosmos, we brought to the table in our turning away from light, because that's how we cast a shadow that became our reality. And so the cross is not original. If you say that, then, then God is a torture device maker. That yeah. makes no sense at all. And um, so where did the cross originate? It originates in our darkness. It is a torture machine with the sole purpose of keeping a human being in as much pain as possible for as long as possible before, before extracting by force their breath from them, their spirit from them. It is a death by suffocation in the most heinous way. Well, we brought that to the table. So how is God going to meet us in the deepest, darkest place? This is a God who by nature submits. And this is mind-blowing to us because we have Zeus, and Zeus would never submit. We have Gandalf with a bad attitude, and that God <laughs> would never submit. But when you have Jesus who washes our feet, and Jesus is God in the flesh, you have God who comes to me in my life and says, I'm not going to make your decisions for you, but I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll never abandon you in the middle of the choices that you make. We're going to work this out together, but I'm going to submit to what you're doing and choosing to do. And then you've got a God who climbs onto a cross, our torture device, and not only climbs onto it, but by, by giving himself to it, destroys its power and transforms that torture device into an icon and a monument of grace mm. so precious to us that we'll wear it on our jewelry, on our rings, on our necklaces, because it, what does it stand for? It stands for a God who will go to the depths of anything I can bring to the table with me and, and build a way out of it. There are still nail scars on the wrist. Right? That's right? The evidence of it is not gone. So there is an example of something that I could change, but I haven't. You've mentioned three times, Paul, as, <clears throat> as we've progressed through the conversation about shame-based background that you had or shame-based guilt mm -hmm. that we all deal with. T tell yeah. me and our friends what you're even referring to here. And if you want to be specific on you, great. Or if you just want to be more holistic on the rest of us, fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's easier for me to be specific on me. I know myself pretty well. Um, um, let's, let's deal with something really simple. Guilt and shame are very different things. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. 
And so shame is ontological. That is, there is something about me at the core of my being that is wrong. And, and sadly, some of our theology has not only supported that idea, but has promoted it. And, um, and if that's the truth of my being, is that I'm depraved and just a piece of crap, then, then really, I've got nowhere to go. Um, I, all I can do is cover up and hope, hope I can cover up well enough to fool God. You know, and uh, um, my shame-based background comes, and, and this is where the term great sadness comes from. It comes from my, some of my great sadnesses. And uh, one of them was a very difficult, painful relationship with my dad. My dad didn't have the chip for being a dad when I showed up. His dad had busted that before I ever got on the scene. But as a child, you don't know that. Yes. You don't know your, you don't know your father's history. You don't know why he's absent or why when he's present, he's furious and a rager and that his discipline just hurts. Uh, it's gotta be your fault. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, one of the, one of my defense mechanisms when my dad who was an abusive disciplinarian when he would come at me was to, I still, I'm still staggered by this, but I would yell three words at him over and over and over and over to try to get him to stop. And those three words were, I'll be good. I'll be good. And with every time I yelled it, I now know that I was pushing in this lie to the core of my being that I am not good. Just give me one more chance. Just, I'll I'll try doing better. And how many of us have tried to do that over and over? Just, just, I'll be good. I I know I'm just worthless and nothing, but I'll be good. Mm. And then... And then, you know, that's as a child. So I didn't want anything to do with my dad. My parents were missionaries at a time where pioneer missions required every bit of their strength and focus. And the sense was that if, if uh, you know, if we, take, if we do God's work, then God will take care of the kids. And, and frankly, a lot, of, a lot of children in my generation in missions were slaughtered in the name of the gospel. And uh, and just sacrificed mm-hmm. uh, for the for the greater good. And just just to and, be clear, tell tell um, our listeners what you mean by the word slaughtered in this case. In this case, that we were almost an impediment. That is, that it's like, and, and I go to my second grade side, and it'll help explain it even better. And that was sexual abuse. Sexual abuse started before I was five years old in the tribal culture, and then I was sent away to boarding school, missionary boarding school at six and and the big boys would come at li- at night and they would molest the little boys and that's being slaughtered right that's like okay so we've got to do something with the kids and the, we were communicated um in the context of boarding school you can't say anything about what's going on here because people will go to hell if you if, if you say something it's going to negatively impact the mission and there will be people who will be in hell because you said something. Now, if that's not slaughtering a child, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. So when, um, when the shack came out, a, a writer, a woman from uh, Nashville, Leanne Stewart, mm-hmm. and she wrote me a note and she said, I don't know anything about you. I don't know, I don't know your history, but my sense is that Missy, who is Mackenzie's daughter, that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child. Mm. Probably you're in it. Probably your innocence. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. And I showed that to Kim and she said, boy, she nailed it. So 
you know, you've got this, this fracture at the very basis of your soul and you've got nobody to go to. I mean, if there's a sense of being alone. And then you've got a theology where thankfully Jesus does come to save you, but who he's saving you from is God the Father. Mm-hmm. Because God the Father needs a sacrifice. God the Father needs perfection. God the Father needs retributive justice. God the Father he can't even look at his own son if his son identifies with me. That's my theology. Mm-hmm. So, and then Jesus has got to hide me from him by covering all of my crappiness with his righteousness. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I grew up with, and there's no life in it at all. And then the third great sadness was the issue of belonging, right? Um, I'm sent to boarding school. I find out that I'm white. It's the first conscious time that I realize that I'm white, which is a huge disappointment. And then I lost my tribe. I lost, and, and even though my abusers were within the tribal context to begin with, they were my family. You belonged, right. You know, I belonged there, but now I didn't. And, and I'm, I'm not them anymore. And so I'd, I, got, I had nobody. And what do you do? Well, you can curl up and die. And we know that you can put 10 children in front of the same abuse and you'll have 10 lives go 10 totally different directions, Mm -hmm. you know, because of the uniqueness of who we are. So what I did as a firstborn missionary kid is became a performer. Mm -hmm. You know, the shack, the house on the inside was a devastation, full of shame. You know, the truth about what I believed about myself was that I was absolutely worthless. It looked like arrogance because yes. I went to hide in my head. You know, it turns out I'm actually pretty smart and pretty creative, which only empowered my ability to hide. And, um, and so I became a performer. I, I just created a facade. That, and the question was, what do you need me to be? I can do that. And I became a different person in every situation. At the same time, the addictions were raging inside the shack, you know, inside the real, the real heart that was broken. But I couldn't let anybody in there because I couldn't take the risk that I would see on their face the look of disgust that I saw when I looked in a mirror. Mm. And uh, so that's the shame-based background that then empowered this ongoing need of drive to win the affection and approval of my dad, to win the affection and approval of anybody who might be a dad, to, to, to be okay. And so, you know, I became a mover. That is, you have this thin layer of perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. And once somebody starts tapping down through that thin layer and saying, you know what, you're not perfect. You're not everything that you're presenting. Well, then you just run away. Oh, you don't, if you're religious, you don't run away. You just hear God call you somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is the story. So I dragged that shack into my marriage, right? I marry, thankfully, I marry the wrath of God. And, uh, and Kim is the wrath of God. She is, I believe now that the wrath of God is the love of God. I believe that there is a fury about God that is opposed to anything that hurts the ones he loves, which would be you and me and every single human being. And that that love, like George MacDonald says, will not stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in us. Mm. And he becomes, and it's the same love that I have for my children and grandchildren, let me tell you. If they start believing a lie, give me the power to be a flaming fury of fire, not opposed to them, 
but this is a fire that is for us. And I believe that's true about God. Kim's fire, as furious as she was, ultimately it was for me. And uh, part of part of my healing process is because of the the depth and the clarity of her fury that pushed me to start dealing with every piece of garbage that was inside my shack, everything mm-hmm. that wasn't true in every way that I hid and all my secrets. So that's the 11 years. And when everything blew up and, and it was over adultery, I, um, I got a one-sentence phone call from Kim on January 4th, 94, and it just said, I'm, I'm waiting for you at your office, and I know. And what she knew was I was in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And, uh, you know, when, when you have such a gaping hole and, and somebody presents the imagination of unconditional love, mm. it's just, you just, you, you, you go for it because, I mean, you kind of go nuts because of the possibility. And, and it's not that, that that love was ever real. It was all, because I, I never let that person into the shack either. It's just that I created an imagination of a relationship and, and used another human being to try to fill a hole that was in me. And I, and I ripped apart a number of families in a community because of it. Um, some of that spill out 20 some years later, I'm still dealing with, you know, uh, that family had eight precious children who loved us. And, and I feel now reconciled to two of them after 20 some years. So choices matter and and consequences are not punishment. Consequences are because there's a high view of humanity that says our choices actually matter. And uh, learning to live inside, spill out and the consequences and own what you've done and then begin to walk it out. I mean, that became the fire, uh, you know, like I think it's maybe Oprah who said, you know, I'm sure she got it from somewhere, but that um, religious people believe in hell, but spiritual people have been there. Oof. And uh, I know it's a, it. it's a powerful statement about the, the purifying, burning away of all the crap. And it's not like there isn't finished work, Yes. but in 11, in 11 years, I did major reconstruction and, and I had to find a way to let go of control. I opened the yellow pages, looked under counseling, found a, found a counseling service out of the yellow pages, called him up, and for the first time in my life sat in front of another human being and said, my life is over, can you help me? And that started a a process of trying to unravel some of this damage. But I'd hit the bottom. When you hit the bottom, you know, you don't bail out anymore, and you stop pointing fingers at whatever, you know, your dad or your abuse or, you know, all these other things. you got to deal with them. But you own what you did, and uh, and that started a journey. It took Kim and I eleven years to heal. Man, um, your your journey, yeah. as shared within the shack, Paul has helped a whole lot of other people. Twenty two million and growing, also begin the journey. One of the quotes you shared earlier, and by the way, when I when I have the honor of sitting across from a guy or a gal that I deeply respect on these podcasts. I'm always looking for a couple quotes to grab onto, and one of the ones that I wrote down today was this. Listen to it. When you deal with fear, when you deal with your own brokenness, you either control or you trust. And Paul, your decision to stop trying to control and to begin trusting has transformed not only your life, but a whole lot of other lives. And 
Brother Paul, we always wrap up these shows, these podcasts, with seven questions that are the thread that that kind of tie all of our guests together. So I'd like to take you through what we call the Live Inspired Seven. I'd love that. And uh, Paul, what's the best book that you've ever ever read, besides The Shack, of course? I don't want you to come across Greek. as arrogant. The Greek New Testament. <laughs> the, uh, you just you just came across as arrogant. How about the New Testament? All right. So no, the, no, no, no. The New Testament is in so many different translations that it's like a little bit difficult at times. So yeah, you know, there are certain translations that I definitely love better than others. Yes. Um, so, but uh, as far as other books, it depends on on when you catch me because I I love literature. I, yes. Uh, so it could be science fiction. It could be. Um, it could be like uh, uh, Exupere's um, The Little Prince, yes. which I love. It could be Unspoken Sermons, Creation in Christ by George MacDonald, um, Arm of the Starfish by Madeleine Lengel, oh, uh, one of Steinbeck's novels, you know? Yes. It's, uh, it could be a Jacques Ellul book that just kind of buries me inside this wet concrete, yeah. Tomorrow, Paul, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. What would you do with this newfound wealth, Paul? Ooh, good question. Um, I would I would ask the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I would I would stay living inside the grace of one day because that's mm. that's been one of the greatest places of healing for me in this entire journey is finally becoming a child where I don't have to be a future tripper. And that's the issue of trust or control again. Ooh. And uh, so, you know, God doesn't need money, and money is a, a resource on this planet. So, um, and that's a way that a lot of people uh, deal with the issues of control. They think that that's going to give them control. So, you know, the question would be, do I give it all away? Do I, do I, you know, what do we do yeah. with ours now? It's a daily, ongoing conversation, right? So we get to do some really beautiful things, and some of it nobody will ever know. Well, not until we pull the threads in eternity when we find out what little blue-haired lady was playing yes. that started this whole shack thing. Well, you know, and to be honest, Paul, money's uh, easy to attract and make in so many ways. One of the real signs of wealth is what we do with our time, and even for you to spend time today— and you've spent time, anytime I've called you, whether it's coffee visits or uh, time on the phone with me. And I think it's that's one way you choose to spend your wealth. And now I have an answer on why, because you stay living within the grace of one day. I think that's awesome. Third question is this, my friend. If, you, if your house catches fire, okay, and all living things, that's Kim and your babies and grandbabies, all living animals are out. They're all out. And you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing. One item that really does matter to you, what would you grab? Wow. Well, thankfully, all the pictures and stuff are on the web, mm. on the cloud. I, I would, I think I would grab, this last summer, uh, a man named Brian Oxley. This was at Johnny Cash's old farmhouse in Tennessee. And... Uh, and, and he bought it and has restored it like a little museum, but he's offered this space for people to come and, and, and just encounter uh, Jesus. And, uh, and I'm looking 
uh, I, I was invited to speak this thing for these millennials. It was awesome. And um, I'm going through, I'm looking at his library, and he's got this incredible library of first editions by uh, Tolkien and mm-hmm. Lewis and George MacDonald. And I, I said, are these like Johnny Cash's? They said, well, it's a mix of, of Johnny's and Brian's. And so later when I ran into Brian, I said, I'm, I'm absolutely stunned at your library. And, and he said, really, nobody ever asked me about my library. I'm going like, and then he starts telling me about stuff that he's got in his vault, you know, the, the, the written notes between Tolkien and Lewis and stuff. And the, the next day when I was leaving, he said, I got something for you. And he handed me a first edition, George MacDonald, Unspoken Sermons, Creation in Christ. And I think I'd run in and grab that, mm. you know, because there's something about that book that... Um, and it's hard for people in the Scottish brogue to read it, but if there's an edition by Roland Hine that they can get that is much easier, but it's profound. And so that's what I'd probably do. That's awesome. Just grab that, yeah. Brother, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach and have a long, long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to sit next to? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> or Jesus. What's the or, what? What's the first if, if, question you would ask this person? Huh. Am I right in hoping mm. that one day every single human being, without the violation of their will, will be fully restored to face-to-face relationship with you? What's the best advice you've ever received? Learn to laugh at yourself <laughs> is, is right up there. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, don't take yourself so serious. I think living inside the grace of the day has got to be, and I think I got that advice from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I think that has been absolutely pivotal. It's huge. I, you know, and I got it from you, and so did our listeners. I think it's awesome, so thank you for sharing it. Two more questions, Paul. Yep. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Go see a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I would. It's like you have no clue, you know? <clears throat> you're, you're, you're dragging around this big corpse of a history, and, and you, need, you need to come out of the shadows. You need to tell your secrets. Sooner the better. Final question. It's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. William Paul Young, author of The Shack and my friend, how would you want your one sentence to read? Mm, Boy, that is a great question. I, I wanted to read... He finally became a child. Hmm. William Paul Young, 22 million copies into the shack, movie releasing today, uh, and absolutely no arrogance at all in the tone with which you share your life and your journey. We have been so honored to have you on the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, it's always a two-way street talking to you. And, uh, (laughs) And thank you for that. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for just creating space for people to 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 find some some place 
to to lament, to grieve, to to rejoice, to celebrate, to ask their questions. Um, the world the world needs your voice. Well, my friends, that was William Paul Young. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Woo, my friends, did you enjoy this episode of Live Inspired with John O'Leary with today's guest, William Paul Young? Did you enjoy it? I am out of breath, I'm exhausted, and I am emotionally spent and absolutely lit up right now for life. I hope you are too in your life, regardless of where you are at home, your finances, relationally, spiritually, where you are in your journey. Uh, a, A gentleman like that who has been through the experiences like that, who has come out on the other side like that and has shared with us content like what he shared on the podcast, but also, if you haven't yet seen it, the movie, or read it, the book, check out The Shack. We will have a link to it in our show notes. It's at johnolearyinspires.com. If ever there was a time to go back and read more about this show, learn more about Paul Young, this is the time. So check out johnolearyinspires.com. Feel free while you're there to leave reviews of the podcast. Let us know what's working, what some of the main takeaways has been. And also, if you're enjoying this episode and these episodes and this content as much as I enjoy bringing it to you, take a moment now, tell your friends, share it online, share it through Facebook, through Twitter, through your email accounts. Let people know that you're tuning into something that is worthwhile. And in a marketplace that is spewing out negativity and notices of death and gloom, man, the worst is in front of us, the best is behind us. Let's remind people that we do life with that, in fact, they're wrong, and the best days are upon us and certainly in front of us. So check out johnolearyinspires.com. Share that site. Share this podcast. Let's remind people that the best is yet to come. So my friends, for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired.